you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Dan Nathan, Brian Kelly, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, don't sweat the stress test. The big banks in the green after passing with flying colors, but the real hurdle for the stocks is just around the corner. We'll explain. Plus, a sudden departure by the CEO of Intel. What went wrong and should shareholders be worried? We've got the details, but we start off with summertime sadness. On the first official day of the season, the Dow locking in its eighth day of losses, dropping nearly 200 points as trade war fears sparked global slowdown worries. And when did the selling start? Well, when the Fed raised rates last week. So we've heard this story before, but here's what's different about today. We closed on the lows. The market leaders, big tech, sold off, and there's been no relief. It's the longest losing streak for the Dow in more than a year. So is it different this time? And when should investors start to worry, Guy? Certainly does feel different to me. And I hate using that term, it's different this time. But this time it does. And I think everything Dan and Brian have been worried about is starting to come home to roost now. I would put this at the fault of the Federal Reserve. And by the way, I think they're doing everything right. I think they should hike another couple times this year and at least three times next year. If not four, they shouldn't be concerned about the market. But I think the language they used on Wednesday, and we talked about it last Wednesday night, was such that maybe that Fed put doesn't exist anymore. Couple that with emerging market weakness, which has been around now for the last month, month and a half. The fact that banks kind of can't get out of their own way, it's something Dan talks about. Everybody comes on bullish banks. I'm one of those people, by the way. But the XLF has potentially a major double top. And you sort of have a witch's brew of a market that maybe, in the S&P at least, has another 50 to 75 points to the downside. For me, what was different was the names that people were buying for idiosyncratic growth. Let's call them the small caps, Russell, tech, you know, your fang stocks that are going to grow. Whether or not we have a trade war or not, we're very weak today. They, they were weak from the get-go. And to me, you know, Wilbur Ross was on the air this morning. He talked about these trade war tactics as being somewhat of a negotiating tactics. They want to make it, they want to make it more painful for our trading partners than they do so that they'll change their mind. That's not exactly a great scenario for the global economy. Add in Daimler warning today that they're going lower. So there are quite a few items today that I think if you're a market participant, you have to say, you know what? At the very least, let's be cautious at these stages. It's one thing for companies to come out and say they're feeling the pressures, they're feeling the input costs rising, et cetera. But when you have a company actually say the exact impact EPS, that's when it really starts getting quantifiable. You think, hey, this is really something that's, that's hitting them. I looked at it as something very specific to them, to actually, them. Okay. as a as some sort of, you know, general kind of catch-all that they could use because they, in particular, are having, I don't know how they would be able to gauge so quickly exactly what the impact would be and then to forecast out when we really don't know how it's all going to shake out. So to me, that was really It's like weather. Of, yeah, but it's important. I think as we get into July, though, don't you think it's really important that this is a good warning for us? It's obviously in Europe, but as we get into Q2 earnings season, I think that it's really, uh, I think it's an easy one that we're going to see um, not a whole heck of a lot of visibility into the second half of the year as far as guidance is concerned. So I think if stocks in the U.S. are trading right now, we have the NASDAQ that's up 11%. We have the S&P up almost 3%. You know, listen, 
there's really no cause for alarm in U.S. equities. If you look around the world, there are no major um, there are no major equity indices that are actually up on the year. We know that the Shanghai is down about 13 percent. We most of the uh, the, uh, the indices in Europe are down on the year. So we could just be in a bit of a digestion phase here. And I just want to make one point about interest rates. We talk about this. We have a lot of strategies who come on and they talk about the flattening yield curve and they say, what does it mean when it averts? Almost always, it means ultimately in the next year or so we're going to have a recession. Obviously, the yield curve is at the flattest it's been since September 2007 at 35 basis points. And the issue that you guys have is we have a hawkish Fed. They're going to keep raising. If the global growth story kind of peters out, we are going to have an inverted yield curve very soon. And that in and of itself could be the thing that causes equity weakness. Doesn't mean that a recession is going to happen next month or three months from now, but that could be the thing that spooks people. And I think it's really important to kind of keep a very close eye on that, especially when you have the dollar rallying it the way it is and we have this uh, talk about trade war. You, but going back to the original question, yeah. do you think, think it's different? Yeah, do you think no, it's I really different? don't, yeah. actually. I mean, you know, we've been in this trade war back and forth for quite a while. I don't think it's all for naught, actually. I think, I think we'll actually make some progress for the U.S. I, I'm sort of slowly coming around to that, but I probably would do it a, quite a bit differently than the way administration said it, but I get what they're trying to do. And I think, you know, we don't really have a catalyst at the moment. We'll get one soon when we start to see earnings in early July. And so, you know, the market's back and forth a little. I don't think this is... I, I'm not overly concerned. The China thing, I think, is is somewhat of a concern, but I think it's so tied to this trade war, which is not even close but to being over yet. But isn't that the point, yet. Karen, that if we do see a bunch of Q3 guidance that looks like what we saw from Daimler, that's the sort of thing that could take some air out of our stock market, which on a relative basis acts very well. I, I mean, think that, we may see some strength, though. I think yeah. we could see a, a very good Q2. And for a lot of companies, I think they'll be looking at the back half of the year with optimism, not concern. It's interesting. You know, Dan, Dan and Karen went out a little bit last night. Of course, Dan cut Karen off a number of times, which is not <laughs> unusual. But one of the points he made was, you know, Google had a big run up yesterday, mm -hmm. but closed on the lows. And, he, and Dan said, aren't you concerned the way Google closed? It's interesting that he brought that up because it forced me to look. Sometimes things people say on this desk right, you know, create yeah. in, right, yeah. interest. And I looked down and said, oh, you know what, Dan brings up a good point. Because Google topped out in December at the same level that it topped out yesterday. So if you look at Google and say, oh, maybe putting in a double top there. Tesla is another stock that had that huge run-up, starting to give up the ghost a little bit now. XLF, something that BK has mentioned, potentially a major double top from about 10 or so years ago. Then all of a sudden you say to yourself, maybe it's different in so much as these stocks all ran up, touched those levels, and are backing off. The S&P, by the way, traded up the levels we topped out in March, and that seems to be backing off. So... Is it different in terms of the rhetoric? No. Is it different in terms of how the stocks are trading? Maybe yes. I think that's exactly the point. At least that's for me what was different about today. It's the behavior of investors today that changed. People had been buying the growth, growth differential between the U.S. and everywhere else. And today, that story appeared to fall apart. I, I it's yeah. interesting because Q1 wasn't, in terms of earnings, wasn't a huge catalyst for stocks. Uh, no, Q1 wasn't, wasn't great. For, yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody thought, oh, earnings are going to be great. They're going to be fantastic. They're going to, you know, we're ratcheting up estimates. Earnings what happened? were good. There was yeah, they were good. They were, They're good. The stocks, stocks didn't, re didn't react. react. There wasn't a catalyst for the stock market. There was market. a little bit of a lull in the right. economy. Yeah, that's right? true. That's true. And so I think we're not seeing that for this quarter. But look, today, I don't feel like today was dramatically different. Look at the VIX today. There really was hardly any panic in the VIX. It moved a little. Right? Uh, I mean, uh, not a lot. And maybe we'll, we'll see. We'll, I think maybe we'll get uh, to know, banks but, uh, later. I mean, but things that we, you know, the, the dollar being as weak as it was in Q1, I think, was a huge benefit. And it, gave, ah. it gave companies a lot of visibility. Right. And dollars much higher here. I, I just think to poo-poo this into the Q2 earnings, 
earnings, Q2 earnings are baked in the cake. Don't matter. It's gone. I mean, like, as far as I'm concerned, I think Melissa's point is a good one, that we ran in late December into early January into Q4 um, earnings. Yeah. And the guidance that they gave for the Q1 guidance, it didn't matter because it was already kind yeah, of in that loop. into this? I but don't see sold a huge high right before earnings come Really? Out. We're up from 2,600 yeah. in like the last month Off and a half. Off of the March lows, but if you look for this last six months. Yeah, but I, I, listen, I don't think there's anyone in this desk who's saying that the market's going to fall out of bed or anything like that. I think what's really clear is that the S&P 500 in particular is in very much in a range. The Nasdaq made a new high and the Russell made a new high and they're coming back a little bit and, and if anything there's probably more room to the downside. The S&P 500 is likely to trade between 26 600 and 2850 for like maybe the balance of the year. I mean, I would be shocked to see. We would have to see so many things that are on the, uh, you know, the. the uh, I agree with that. So that many things on the shock yeah. me at all. So, so, so maybe it's a trader's market. You know, guy was said buy Tesla at 280 two months ago. It went to 380. You know, I mean, there's there's plenty of opportunities to trade stocks. Your Google, it was down at a thousand two months ago. It went up 1200. Probably a good level. I mean, these are this is the stuff we're talking about here. I think it's a good. There's a lot of at trading what point though do we think that an eight day losing streak become something bigger. I mean, you're the one who said, you said you felt like things are different. I mean, it feels, so what, it, what it, and I hate to be that person. We're out I'm, of a range and we're going down. It, it feels different to me. You know, Dan brought up the, 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 the yield curve. 35 basis points is drastic. I mean, and it's moved in such a way. The speed in which it's gotten here is startling to me. And let me say one other thing. I, and I don't think Dan was saying this, but I don't think a recession causes the stock market to go lower. I think the stock market going lower can cause a recession. I know that might sound somewhat counterintuitive, but if the 70% of this economy is driven by the consumer, and consumer confidence, in my opinion, all it is is an overlay of the stock market. Stock market does well. Everybody feels great about things. They spend money. If the stock market starts to back off, people don't feel as strong about things, stop buying things, our economy gets weaker, then it starts to feed on itself. Something to think about. As we mentioned before, tech failing to buck the selling trend today. So is there more pain ahead for the tech trade? Our next guest thinks so. Let's go to Chris Harvey, Wells Fargo Securities, head of equity strategy over at the Plasma to make his case. Hey, Chris, what are you looking at? Good afternoon. And Melissa, thanks for having me. It's, gr it's great to be back. So I want to talk a little bit about tech. We've been positive on tech for some time. And tech's worked out quite well. But we're starting to worry. Everything is coming up roses. And what we're concerned about, really, that's causing a concern, it's actually causing a paranoia, and perhaps it's just our Catholic guilt. But at the end of the day, what you're seeing is pre-announcements to the positive side. You're seeing analyst upgrades. And every time we talk to clients, to analysts, to corporation, it's tech, tech, tech. When you have that type of positive sentiment, when you have that type of positive news, usually it means a lot of the good news is priced in, and that's a concern to us. So let's just check off a couple things. Like tech, full of sentiment, perhaps too high, but now, more importantly, what we're seeing is passive flows. Passive flows are the marginal driver, and passive flows are uninformed information flow. Passive doesn't care about risk-reward. Passive doesn't care about fundamentals. What passive is trying to do is trying to get exposure. And ultimately, what it does, it buys what works. And what's working is technology. And that's fine for now, but longer term, we're concerned. So ultimately, when we take a step back, what we're worried about is good becomes great and great becomes bad. Now, the last thing we want to talk about is momentum. And if you look at momentum, chart looks good. However, even momentum ultimately has some sort of reversion to the mean. Chart doesn't always look good. So at the end of the day, we're worried about good becoming great, great becoming bad, 
We're not ready to pivot because we still like the valuation. We still like the fundamentals. And passive is a tailwind. But now we're starting to think about it. Now we're getting worried because everyone is very, very bullish on the space. I think Chris comes over, right? Well, no, he tried to curry favor with you. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> oh, I think we should have him back over here. He should get thrown off the. He should get thrown right, the no, building. Come on over, Chris. <laughs> Michelle will bring the chair in. Thank you, Michelle. Oops. So you're not ready to. It, it's. You don't really sound highly convicted in this call to get out of technology. You're saying like sort of like watch it because it might turn from great to bad. But how do you know? Because that that is your job to tell us. It, it is our job. So what, what we're saying is we're getting ready to get ready. We're starting to see the euphoria. We're starting to see the good news. At some point, we're going to pivot. So we're telling clients, get ready, look to, to turn, but not yet. What we want to see is we want to see the euphoria fill in. We want to see capitulation on the value side. We're starting to see that. We're starting to see value players capitulate. We're starting to see them start to chase momentum, start to chase technology. We haven't seen it yet, but we're waiting for more upside. When we see that upside, that's when, it, when everything is positive, that's when we're going to make that turn. All right, so let me ask you, when you say get ready to get out of tech, what does that mean? Lighten, get out completely, short, what does that mean? <laughs> what that means, the first, we always go in a stepwise fashion. So the first step is to bring it down, back down to a market weight. Then we're going to look for a catalyst to go underweight. What we're seeing, what we're doing is we see a lot of, whether it's low volatility, whether it's staples, whether it's utilities, whether it's uh, farmer, we're seeing a lot of these names fall out of bed. There's opportunity building up. But again, we don't have the catalyst to shift to that risk aversion. We're looking for it, and we think that that euphoria is that catalyst. We're not there yet, but 2Q numbers are quite good. And again, what we're worried about is good becoming great, because when it becomes great, that's when it becomes bad. As you go from overweight to market weight on technology, what do you cycle into then? So what we're telling clients to cycle into is, is the banks. So we've heard a lot of talk about banks. Incredible capital giveback story. At work with Mike Mayo. He thinks it gets even better. The sentiment around banks, not that great. Valuation, rather attractive. And we think from a risk point of, point of view, it's actually rather attractive as well. All right. Chris, thank you. Thank you. Chris Harvey. Would you rather? I'm, oh, I like oh. this game. Would you rather? Would you rather? Let's play the game. Banks or tech? Wow. Banks or tech? Because he's saying go from overweight to market weight on tech and cycle into financials. And I like Chris Harvey. He's a smart man, that despite mean the that, fact that he tried that, to curry favor with you. It doesn't mean that <laughs> you're buying what he's selling. Listen, banks have gone sideways to lower now for the last Everybody, I'm one of these people, by the way, to come on and say, you know what, banks make sense on valuation, price to book, but they haven't performed. So given the game, would you rather, I'll stay with tech for now. Uh... I am actually, I'm overweight tech right now. Right, I mean, okay. I'm more in tech than I am in banks. Are you inclined However, to get ready to I'm pivot? I'm inclined to get ready to do something, yes. I have to wait a little. I got some tax thing. But anyway, all that ever said, I like the banks. Clearly, they haven't performed at all. I have big positions, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Citi. Today's thing was not news at all. Next week, we'll see what they can do. I think the valuations are really attractive here. I don't, I don't know when they'll start to find favor, but they will. They will. These valuations, I think, if the market doesn't fall apart. Coming up, a sudden departure for the CEO of Intel, shocking the tech world. We'll give you the latest details, tell you what it could mean for the stock. Plus, Bitcoin is stuck in crypto purgatory. But ICOs are heating up, and that has even our own crypto baller, BK, getting a little nervous. He'll explain. And speaking of being hot, Chipotle stock is on fire in the fast food giant is testing out a few top secret items for its menu today. We're putting them to the ultimate fast money taste test right here on set. We're live from New York City's Times Square. Much more fast money right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. A shocking development in the tech world as CEO Brian Krasanich resigns from the company. Let's get to Josh Lipton, who's at Intel headquarters for the details. Josh. Melissa, a shock is right, both for Intel and Silicon Valley. Intel removing CEO Brian Krasanich, saying he had a consensual relationship with an employee. Now, Melissa, that violates company policy, which says managers can't have relationships with people who report to them either directly or indirectly. It's unclear with whom Krasanich had this relationship, but it ended some time back. Sources telling CNBC company only recently apparently learned of all this, at which point it launched an investigation and took action. In a filing, Intel is saying Krasanich is entitled to a $38 million walkaway payment in the event of a voluntary termination. An Intel spokesperson didn't immediately respond to a comment about whether Krasanich, in fact, is going to receive that payment. Krasanich, we know, an Intel veteran, joined the company way back in 1982, became CEO in 2013, where he really broadened the chipmaker's reach beyond the PC and the data center and into things like AI, the Internet of Things, and self-driving cars. Analysts say he does deserve credit for a stock price that jumped about 120% under his watch. CFO Bob Swan has been appointed interim CEO, company also raising Q2 guidance. But the question is, who's going to replace Krasanich permanently? Patrick Moorhead of More Insights and Strategies says one potential internal candidate we should watch is Murthy Renduch Intala. He is Intel's chief engineering officer. Intel saying the board is already now conducting this search and it'll interview both internal and external candidates. Guys, back to you. All right. Thank you so much, Josh Lipton. And Intel has been a hot stock under Brian Krasanich's reign. The stock is up a whopping 120 percent since he took over in May of 2013. So now that he's out, should Intel shareholders be worried. I mean, remember, this is a guy trying to sort of transform Intel in terms of what kinds of chips they sell. They bought Mobileye, right, uh, a year ago or so. so Altera and Nirvana, I yeah. mean, they made a lot of acquisitions over the last three years. And I think that, you know, they're not starting. Well, listen, on, the, on, on the, some of the segments, they're starting to see some growth. And that was one of the reasons why the stock was trading at 10-year highs over the last uh, couple of weeks. I'd say the stock actually traded reasonably well, considering. And, you know, here's a scenario where whatever corporate action that you were hoping they may make in the second half, they are not going to be making it. Um, they may take some time to really make sure they find the right person to be the CEO. But again, I think this goes back to the earnings, too. Here's a story where earnings are expected to grow 15 percent this year, sales high single digits. They're supposed to meaningfully decelerate next year. So when you start valuing this on the out year mm -hmm. and you start thinking about some of the cycles that they've been in uh, data center, um, some of the stuff that they're trying to do, um, AI related, you know, maybe it's, it is just dead money for a while. Maybe you got that move from the mid-30s to the mid-50s, and now you need to digest a little yeah. bit. Yeah, for me, I mean, listen, Krasanich was a great CEO, but he's not a Howard Schultz. He's not an Elon Musk. He's not somebody that is, like, is central to the to the company. Now, that's not to take away what he's done, but they did catch this massive upgrade cycle as well. So I think this is less about the CEO and more about the outlook for the industry. You're a shareholder. Yeah. I am a shareholder. Yeah, it's a little disappointing. I agree. I agree with Dan. I think it traded pretty well considering the news. And I agree he's also not the Howard Schultz, Elon Musk kind of kind of CEO. And I think a company like Intel with their resources can pay to find somebody really great. Yeah. They will. I don't know how long it'll take though. Has been a ridiculous last summer this was a thirty-five dollar stock languishing for six months. Now it traded up to fifty-eight recently. At what point, though, you're starting to see analysts come around to the fact that maybe AMD is catching up to Intel. You've seen a number of people say, you know what, AMD is making up ground. They've downgraded Intel, upgraded AMD. 
Great call by Dan Nathan a couple nights ago, though, saying, no, you say you've enjoyed, he, he looked at me and said, you've enjoyed this run in AMD, it's probably time to pull the ripcord. I think the stock was trading north of 16 and a half. Look at what it did today. So maybe all these chip names, in the short term at least, got ahead of their skis. But in terms of this story specifically, mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily all that, it's not good, but I don't think it's devastating by any means. Coming up to say many of the big players passing the stress test moments ago, the financials are inching toward correction territory and they could face an even bigger hurdle next week. We will explain. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC First and Business Worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. OG crypto baller and Bitcoin bull says there's bubbles brewing in parts of the crypto market. And he'll tell us what that is. Plus, as burrito giant Chipotle introduces new items, it faces its toughest test, Gaia Dami. And that's when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert. The Federal Reserve releasing the first part of its annual stress test uh, for big banks moments ago. Wilfred Cross is breaking down the results from the NYSE. Hi, Wilf. Hi, Melissa. Yes, indeed. So the Fed says that the largest bank holding companies are strongly capitalized and that the 35 largest U.S. banks have enough capital to withstand a severe shock. Uh, the Fed vice chair for supervision, Randy Quarles, added that capital levels under the severely adverse scenario are higher than the actual capital levels of large banks in the years leading up to the financial crisis. On average, of the 35 banks tested, the CET1 ratio falls from 12.3% to 7.9% under that severely uh, adverse scenario. And that's despite the test getting harder this year from last year. Under that scenario, it assumes a GDP falls 7.5%, unemployment increases to 10%, equities fall 65%, housing's down 30%, and commercial real estate down 40 percent. Uh, here are some of the individual results of the big six banks. They all look fairly comfortable. Goldman Sachs is the lowest, which was expected and in part why they suspended their buyback in the last quarter set of results. The supplementary leverage ratio, which is the ratio of tier one capital to leverage, sees all the banks above their respective minimums. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs fairly low relative to the others, but still above the three percent level needed for next week's CCAR tests. Uh, next week, we will get an outright pass or fail and we'll learn uh, of the capital return plans for each of the banks. Uh, that's pretty much the headlines, Melissa. All right, Will, thank you. Wilfred Frost from the NYSE. I turn to Karen because this is yes. sort of um, perfunctory in some ways. Next week is the big show. Next week is the big show, And what show, are you looking right. for here? I'm looking for, well, the big three that I, Citibank, I think, is the most upside. I think, you know, that's the most leverage to having, a, you know, a balance sheet that can do something with. So that's my, my biggest position, but I think all, all of them would be in good shape. I know that everyone knows that already and that people are expecting, oh, we'll see buybacks, maybe some dividend increases. However, the stocks have not run up into this at all. So I like them all right here. What just, I got to say, kudos to Guy, Deutsche Bank. They're not one of the 35. They're not U.S., but Guy has been so on it for at least a year. Well, that's it's the blind squirrel thing. You know, you just pick a bank out of the hat and hope but it works. But Deutsche Bank, you're not. That acorn. <laughs> There, I, listen, I think maybe one of the reasons the U.S. banks are trading as poorly as they are, maybe there is some systemic risk with Deutsche Bank. Maybe there's more to this than we want to talk about. And the fact that it's a European domicile bank, we don't talk about it every night here, maybe that's the only reason. Maybe if it was a U.S. bank, we would talk about it every night. There's something very wrong there. And I got to believe at a certain point it affects other banks. And maybe that's why U.S. banks haven't rallied. I believe Fitch just put it on negative outlook uh, for Deutsche Bank this afternoon. But in terms of in terms of CCAR next week and, and learning, I mean, Karen made the point that the banks are not running up into this. 
the, the fact it's that they curious, act horrible right? into it doesn't make me feel any better either. Oh, you don't I, think it's going to be a catalyst either? No. I, I, I actually think it, you could get a sell the news when it finally happens. Oh, so I, the sell-off yeah, would be and, even and I'll weaker, tell you, so if, if you're waiting for companies like Goldman Sachs that are down almost 20% from their all-time highs that they made earlier this year to reinstate their buyback, and you think the stock's going to go back to the highs on that, you got another thing coming. And then, you know, the, the thought that the, uh, the repeal of some of the Volcker stuff, that's going to be great. These guys are going to start, you know, taking risk on their own balance sheets again. Do you think that they have really the risk-reward there to start doing that? The upside-downside is so asymmetric. If they get that wrong, they will be in the penalty box for years to come from here on out. So to me, I just think it's a relatively... Um, benign group right here. Have a ball. Buy Citigroup down 9% of the year. Or Goldman Sachs down 10% of the year. Um, maybe they go back to their prior highs. I don't know. But to me, it seems like a kind of one up, maybe one and a half down risk reward right here. Where do you think they should be trading then? Well, listen, you know, you guys keep talking about, you know, price to book. It should get back to, you know, some of the levels. It should never get back to those levels. So they're probably all fairly priced right here. When you consider what the positive catalysts that are very well known out there are, especially after this announcement that we have next week, you say to yourself, why the heck would anybody rally these stocks afterwards if it's not meaningfully above expectations? Well, if you, if you want to buy them, they're actually pretty good risk-reward on a trading level here, right? So take a look at something like Citibank. Again, $65. You know where your stop-out is. You know that you have, you know, you can say, hey, listen, I want to risk a dollar or two and get that upside. If they break below that and you look at XLF, I think it's about 26 or 28, I forget the number right now, that the major support has been there. If it breaks that, you've got a problem, but at least you can use that as you stop and you got a you great risk-reward. You know how you can reward. kind of set stops and do that? Risk-reversal. Well, with the options. Oh, is that so? If Pete was sitting right here, he'd be like, listen, you know, and, and, and I don't disagree with you. If you look at J.P. Morgan, you know, the stock's at 107.5, 105 is that breakdown level. If you think it's a great play into their Q2 earnings in next month and you think CCAR is a thing, then buy the near-the-money calls. Risk 2% and have mm -hmm. that potential upside but you define your risk to that breakdown level. Funny you mention options, Dan, oh, yeah. because <laughs> options traders are betting oh, yeah. on a rally ahead for one of the big banks. Mike goes at the plasma to break it down. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so it's funny how you're talking about maybe risking a little bit less to try to make a bet on a modest upside. We were looking at Morgan Stanley today as one of the banks that did see some bullish activity. It saw two times the average daily call volume. And where that activity came from mostly was a buyer of the July 51, 52 and a half call spread. They were spending just 43 cents for that. Now, this is a relatively modest spread right here, so it's only betting on a fairly modest increase, but they can make two times as much as they're risking, a little bit more, actually. None of this 43 cents. Basically, what they're betting on here is that the stock could hit just this 52 and a half level, which is right about here. And an important thing to remember, we're talking about bank earnings coming up. Theirs is going to be on the 18th, so actually... This will capture that. J.P. Morgan, I think, is going to be afterwards on the 27th, and we did see some bearish activity there. And to Guy's point, Deutsche Bank also saw some bearish activity today, which continues what we've been seeing for a while now. And, and more broadly beyond this, anybody, uh, any other ones pop up on your radar in terms of bets to the upside on uh, CCAR? Uh, well, I mean, Key Corp, which isn't probably in the same category as mm -hmm. one of these, we, we saw some bullish activity in there. Um, and we have seen some bullish activity in Bank and City. All right. Mike, thanks. My co. For more options action, check out the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Look, he walked off. <laughs> walked off into the sunset. Still ahead, Bitcoin's been stuck in purgatory since hitting an all-time high in December. But despite the plunge of the ICO market, it's booming. We'll tell you what that means. Plus, Chipotle unveiling some new menu items at its next kitchen, at its test kitchen in lower Manhattan today. CNBC's Kate Rogers is there putting the food to the test. Kate.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Chipotle unveiling brand new items that could soon be added to its menu. Let's get to Kate Rogers, who's on the ground outside of Chipotle's test kitchen for the details. Hi, Kate. Hey, Melissa, that's right. We are here at Chipotle's test kitchen in New York City. They're trying out some interesting things like this avocado tostada, a quesadilla. They're also looking at a Mexican chocolate shake. Now, none of this should come as a surprise. When we talked to their new CEO, Brian Nickel, back in April when he first came over, he said that they were going to be trying out some new items on the menu, different innovative things, but that they were going to be sticking to their core their core fresh ingredients, the things that they're really known for. Obviously, investors are really excited about nickel. The stock is up nearly 50% since he was announced back in March, and he was known for a lot of the innovative things he did at Taco Bell, like introducing breakfast and some of their other limited-time offerings. Now, speaking of Taco Bell, we also got to talk with Chipotle's new chief marketing officer, Chris Brandt, who also worked at Taco Bell. Here's what he had to say about some of these potential additions to the menu. We want to build more awareness with people, um, and so we're going to, and we want to be more culturally relevant. And so, in doing so, we're going to be in some of the big things. You saw us in the NBA Finals. You saw us in premieres of big shows. We want to continue that mantra, but we'll still be local as well. Now, guys, a lot of the stuff is really good. This is the Mexican chocolate shake. It's awesome. It's a little spicy, but this is the test kitchen. So those three things I told you about, they're only available here right now. They test them in regions that they feel are representative of the national marketplace before they decide to roll them out. One other interesting thing, beverage accounts for only about 7% of Chipotle's sales right now. So Brant mentioned that's really an untapped market for them, something they may be focusing on in the future. Melissa, over to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers testing out some of the new items over at Chipotle at the test kitchen. Um, so what do we think about these? I mean, part of we've seen this sort of turnaround here. Adding menu items is always tricky. You want to keep the delivery yeah, times I mean, pretty Remember, fast, there was a chorizo time. last year. There was a bunch of different things, and it doesn't seem like they can kind of get out of their way. Their way. So I'm always skeptical of new menu items. With restaurants, to me, is what you want to see is are they opening new stores? Do they have that growth pattern? Let, not new menu items. 60% this year. Uh, I think it's okay. I mean, if you think peak earnings back in 2015 were 15 bucks, and, and, and consensus has earnings growing 30% a year for the next few years, they have high single-digit revenue growth. If any of these things really are a hit, you're going to have a stock that's growing back into that valuation. It's going to be expensive, but look at We've been talking about McDonald's trading you know, 24 times or something like that for a long time. So to me, you know, yeah, the stock's up a whole heck of a lot. It probably has a lot of resistance near term at 500, but maybe they got this turnaround down. I was looking at some of the more left-for-dead-ish kind of restaurants. Uh -huh. So Darden today, yeah. I mean, that was huge. So we're getting uh, news stores, but more importantly, some same-store sales growth. So that's really good. Even in a very difficult, the labor cost inflation is very difficult for so many of these restaurants. But Bar Darden doing really well. BJ Restaurants, I mean, that's up huge in the last six weeks. So with the economy humming and you could take the other side of it, I just think this, this space is interesting and I, there's probably more to go. Got, oh, guys, where's Guy? Where did I'm over here. Oh. Because I'm here with it's Melody. You know, Melody's going to be a junior at Spelman University next year. College. Little Spelman College, correct me on live TV. Little did she know <laughs> that she's going to be live taste testing some Chipotle. So when I was a kid, I worked at Carvel. They had flying saucers. This sucker right here, Pete, can you get a picture of that thing? That's like some Fugazi millennial flying saucer. But you know what? I'm intrepid, and I'm going to taste it and let you know what you think. All right. You got to taste it as well. <laughs> All right. I mean, and? It's a little green to me. You know what I'm saying? Green meaning I don't understand. I'm not a fan of green. 
So let me taste this then. Oh, okay. This looks like a, what do they call this, Melody? It's a quesadilla. This is a quesadilla. What makes this different? You don't know. <laughs> if you don't know, the people at home don't know. That's the point. If it's a new menu item, it's supposed to look new. This looks like the same wait. stuff I see all the time. But I'm going to try wait, this. Wait, wait, wait. They don't have a quesadilla on the menu currently at Chipotle. And so the key here is that it's new to, to Chipotle. It's not necessarily a new, newly invented item. So the key here, and I'm going to ask you, Melody, because we want to get the millennials take. Is this quesadilla just as good as another quesadilla that you might pick up someplace else? Would you go to Chipotle and order that? I would go to Chipotle to order. I think it's pretty good. <laughs> All right, the millennials. Speak. All right, so hold on. Wait a second. And then, now, guy, wait a and then the I senior citizen. What is this? Is a, what is this milkshake? What makes this? I heard it's, it's a spicy chocolate milkshake. Should we try this says. thing? Well, it's blended. Easy. You don't have to chew it. So <laughs> just saying. I mean. How can you screw up a chocolate? Seriously. I mean, I'm looking over you now. I know I'm supposed to look in the camera. It's got like, what is it, cayenne pepper in this, this thing? I no Kate I mean, said it was spicy. Kate Rogers said it was spicy. Thumbs up or thumbs down on the thumbs like up? It. She All likes right. it. Like it, I say spike it. Yeah, like it and spike it. <laughs> All right. Spike All right. it, baby. Good job, guys. Good job, Melody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, coming up, the ICO market is sizzling, um, but our own Bitcoin baller BK says it could be getting too hot to touch. He'll tell us what has him so nervous. Plus, calling all gamers the search for the next oh. eSports superstar is on, and a big event this weekend could what give rookie players a chance to else. go big league. We've got the details. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin has been stuck in purgatory since hitting an all-time high late last year. While the price continues to plunge, one area of the crypto market is red hot. Bob Pisani is at the NYSE with more. Bob. Hello, Melissa. The ICO market is still alive and well, but just like Bitcoins, there's a little bit of cracks there right now. So here's the good news. Even with the crypto market down, ICOs are still coming out, though not quite at the same pace as earlier this year, but it's still pretty torrid. There have been as many ICOs in the first six months of 2018 as there were in all of 2017 put together. 334 so far this year versus about 340 for the entire year of 2017. That's a pretty impressive number. So far, more money has been raised this year than all of 2017, and that's the important number. Not surprisingly, there's no shortage of wacky ICOs out there. Here's the latest one. Ta-ta-2 raised a whopping $575 million on a private sale? Private sale of tokens? What's the product? Uh, they're looking to release movies. Imagine this, including a biopic about the founder of Lamborghini Cars. They also want to build a token-powered video-on-demand platform to compete with Netflix. Good luck with that one. Wait, it gets a little weirder. Singer Akon announced he was launching his own crypto. A-coin, get it, A-coin, <laughs> and this will be used as a separate coin in Akon Crypto City. It's a real city already under development in Senegal, really. There's some other good news. There's fewer regulatory concerns now that the SEC has clarified some of these issues around when cryptos may or may not be securities and ICOs. Now, here's the bad news. There's, you know, some scary things still going on. Those hacks of those exchanges in South Korea, that was really scary. That doesn't help. More importantly, I sense a bit of fatigue among the investor community. There's been some huge amounts of money raised, mind-boggling this year. But a lot of investors are growing weary of the valuations. At least that's what I hear. So Filecoin, for example, they raised $200 million, $250 a year ago. They still haven't launched a product. A lot of these were waiting here. The bottom line is this. The SEC keeps... ICOs alive as a viable way to raise capital. I think that's the headline. 
Ta-ta too, Melissa. I just like saying it over and over again. There's something dirty about it. I don't know. I was thinking it sounded like a Chipotle menu item from the test kitchen, but um, dirty is another route. You can go, Bob. Thank you, Bob Bassani at the NYSC. So um, it's interesting because the SEC is just coming out very recently, so you wonder if the boom in ICOs is just people rushing to market to get their coins out. No, a crackdown. you know, I mean, most of these ICOs have really been off uh, overseas, over in Asia. I mean, the U.S. is not really a big player in the ICO market. But what's happening now, and Bob's really spot on, we're in a wait and see type of mode right now. Everybody's saying, show me. Great. We gave you a ton of money. Show me the product. I want to see this thing come out. Um, also, everybody in the brother, to me, is coming and saying, how do I do an ICO or pitching me an ICO? So you have just massive amount of supply with everybody who's rushed into it and said, OK, let me see what these do with a lot of supply coming out there. It feels very much like Bitcoin did in September where we have sky high valuations. It's very frothy. And people are starting to say, you know what, I'm going to put the brakes on the ICOs right now. I've got my portfolio. I don't need a seventh or an eighth ICO. And so, to, you know, it's to me, they're not as hot as they used to be. Or they're too hot and probably will not be that hot. Do the coins from an ICO trade on a secondary no. market? Right. Not so, so there is not the problem of a bubble valuation or, right, because they're, they're only valued at the price at which you pay because there's no exchange after that. Well, Correct. there is, I mean, there's an implied valuation if you raise $500 million and you're selling, you know, 50% of tokens, that's a billion-dollar valuation. So there's an implied valuation that way. But remember, these are, these are startups, right? These are venture capital deals. They have no product or a very early product, and they're raising hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of these are crazy. There's some good ones out there. It's not to take away from all of them, but there's, there's a lot of froth in the market. So, I mean, some of them may not really have a business plan associated with it. I mean, Absolutely. it's an idea, and they're raising money well, against the idea. I, listen, you know, I, I know BK is very close to a lot of the projects, yeah. and there are a lot, a lot of legitimate ones. You know, I would just say that, obviously, Akon, who can't uh, get a single in the top 50, uh, you know what I mean, that sort of thing, doing an ICO, that's kind of, you know, alarm bells should be going off. I'll just make one point, and I know this was kind of the bear case for Ether. Um, you know, when this market dries up, do you see less demand for Ether in the near term to help fund these? So what's really interesting is that this year, a lot of these ICOs have been funded with fiat, with U.S. dollars, and not with Ether. And so what we're seeing from my desk is that there's a shift. Asian investors who were buying these ICOs are actually now starting to look to buy Ether, to buy Bitcoin, to buy some of these big protocols, these platforms that everything's being built on. So um, I would have told you, yeah, if the ICO market goes away last year, then Ether would have a problem. I think it's the exact opposite this year. Still ahead, the hunt for the next esports superstar is on, and we'll talk to the CEO of the biggest rookie gaming league out there. Plus, we've got a check in the Kramer cam. Now you see Jim inside a food truck talking to the CEO of a pizza company, making some big bets on the future in technology. That and much more, top of the hour on Mad Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site. Oh, by the way, it's International Yoga Day, so check out that huge group of people doing yoga in Times Square. Just another day here in Times Square. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The next, uh, the search for the next esports star is on as what's known as the Minor League of Gaming gets ready to launch its first ever All-Star Tournament. Eric Chemi is ready to get his game on back at headquarters with all the details. Hey, Eric. That's right, Melissa. I like that little uh, sound that that little thing made. That was pretty cool. So typically we'd be talking about the NBA draft coming up tonight, but a lot of kids these days they actually want to go pro as a competitive video game or an esports athlete. This weekend in LA. Red Bull partnering with a company called Super League Gaming. They're hosting the first ever 
Red Bull All-Stars Tournament, where the four best teams from the company's League of Legends circuit will compete against each other all at once at the same time. Super League Gaming is like the minor leagues for professional esports. It's similar. It's a setup similar to how traditional sports have their minor leagues for up-and-comers. In this case, amateur gamers compete in local and national competitions to give them exposure and a pathway to the pros. They've got competitive tournaments for five different games, including League of Legends and Minecraft. Most of the players, college-aged, but they also have tons of high school and middle schoolers. There's even somebody who's seven years old. And note the presence of Red Bull here. Like many other companies, Red Bull has been getting more involved in gaming tournaments and sponsorship deals, working with teams and top personalities. The reason, it's simple, Melissa. That's where so many young people are turning their attention. They're playing video games or they're simply watching the best players on the main stage. Even at tonight's NBA draft, many of those top athletes, they're all playing video games in their free time as well. My only last question is, I don't know which one of the traders would be the best gamer. My guess is BK because he's such a crypto guy, and I assume they're correlated. <laughs> And not so much. <laughs> I, I'm very good at Pong. Because <laughs> <laughs> there a contest for that? Maybe there'll be a new league for that. <laughs> Eric, thank you. See ya. Eric Jemmy. For more, let's uh, bring the CEO of Super League Gaming on, Ann Hand. She is leading the charge on building the next generation of esports athletes. Welcome, Ann. Great to have you on Fast Money. Thank you for having me. Have you actually gone to the point where some of these young people who are playing in, in your competitions? are being discovered and going pro? It's a great question because uh, right now the traditional professional esports player peaks at around the age of 21. Now we expect that to change over time just the same way that Tom Brady's a great quarterback at 40 years old. Uh, but that really is, is why Super League is so necessary to the professional level because we're discovering up and coming talent at 12, 14, 16 years old. And those are really the people that have the potential in the near term to become professional esports athletes. I'm sure there are hundreds, thousands of people trying to compete, trying to go pro. So what, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give to these young folks who want to be discovered and want to go pro? What should they do? Yeah, it's really the, the whole heart of why Super League was founded. With all of the excitement at the professional level and all of the smart money going in at that level, it was inevitable that feeder systems would have to emerge. And what we saw early on was that the opportunity to wrap team and league structures around this up-and-coming young talent meant that we could actually bring to them some of the other softer skills that are really the difference between a good and a great athlete. You know, you think about... You know, I, I played tennis a lot growing up. I could hit a tennis ball against a garage door and practice the game. But you build character when you join a team. You learn a lot about teamwork and collaboration and leadership. And so the Super League system, we really feel like, is the added piece of really how to foster these kids into becoming great esports athletes. And we have just about 30 seconds, Ann, but, you know, is it... Not, it's not just about being good at Minecraft or whatever. I mean, do you, should you have purple hair? Should you stand out in other ways, dress in a certain way, so you can really differentiate yourself? Yeah, I mean, look, it's like all um, other kind of great esports or traditional sports athletes. The the backstory, the human interest, the the stories of the players is a big piece of the valuable content and how you create wonderful fandom. But the nice thing for Super League is, is that it really highlights that everybody's a gamer these days and that there's a mainstreaming of gaming. You're not going to grow out of it and that it's a wide psychographic mix. And so there's a place for everyone in the esports ecosystem. I often say esports are going to make your kids social again. And, um, and the nice thing is, is that whether you're going to become a professional or maybe a broadcaster, an analyst or shoutcaster, it's going to open up a lot of career opportunities. Wow. 
Anne, thank you. It's fascinating stuff. Anne Hand, uh, the CEO of Super League Gaming. Um, psychographic diversity, Guy. So, I mean, she made <laughs> I that don't up. know why I turned to you. I know that. Anne is called psycho, psycho what? Graphic. Diversity. Yeah. Fantastic. Listen, clearly I am not their target audience. And I, but, you know, my one kid plays these games, so I should probably encourage him. The same way you encourage your son to go out and throw a football or a baseball, go and play your this? Nintendo Wii and your, your Switch and do those things. Maybe you could be the next Steez. You don't remember him. Steez, I do remember yeah. Steez. Yeah. But the yes. ecosystem that she mentions, sports casting, I mean, all of this is being developed right now. And I'm sure a lot of, we're talking about media mergers. The media company is probably looking at this thinking, hey, yeah, you know, we talked about it last night. It's really place. hard when you think about some of the market caps and the premiums that would need to be paid by some of these media companies to acquire these guys, where a lot of this, if you're going for the esports, is going to be on the come. So to me, you know, it's really hard to think about EA going for 55 or $60 right. billion dollars right now. Up next, final trade. for the final trade, Dan. Uh, I love Karen. I'm not a buyer of her banks. BK. <laughs> <laughs> so we had an interesting reversal in the U.S. dollar today. Check out gold, GLD. Might be time to buy. Mm. Karen. I, I love Dan, too, but I am a buyer of the banks. And the one with the most upside, I think, is Citibank. Do you love Dan uh, or Karen? You know, I love, come on. Of course, <laughs> you know what I didn't love? Let's not make this up. Fugazi chocolate shake from Chipotle. <laughs> they should ditch that before Apparently you even start. Apparently you didn't. You know what? You should get on a JetBlue plane and fly away from that Chipotle chocolate shake. All right. Quickly, Mel. Thanks for watching. Mad Money's up next. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.